0: it just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor-Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th.
2: Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: So the story was based on vaguely in her experience. It was about a young woman, an American there in the Cuban Revolution. She's there to witness it. She gets involved in it. She meets people who are involved in it. Mm -hmm. So I wrote a screenplay in which you see the Cuban Revolution from this young woman's eyes. And It's a good uh, idea. It was a fabulous idea, I thought. I don't know how good the screenplay was, but I did my best. And the note I got back was we were hoping for something more like dirty dancing.
4: <laughs> oh, wow. This is Hello, Isaac, my podcast about the idea of success and how failure affects it. I'm Isaac Mizrahi, and in this episode, I talk to writer, humorist, and host of NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Peter Sagal.
3: Hello, Isaac. Uh, it's Peter Sagal, and I just want to say that one of the things I've carried with me through my life is that when we met in person back in 2006, even though you are an icon of high fashion, you were dressed in the same kind of schmada that I wear every day. And it's just kept me going as I've continued to buy my clothes at Target and Costco. So I'm looking forward to seeing you again and getting that same fashion validation.
4: Peter Sagal is one of those people that I really really relate to only because I think he's so good on his feet. I noticed that in the show he does, wait, wait, don't tell me that I've been listening to Forever. He is really really just witty. And I want to talk to him about what it means to be witty and funny and if there's any difference and how it all comes together for him on that show because it is literally one of the great institutions In this country, and he is just beloved in my book. So let's get started. Peter Sagal. Hello, darling. Hello, Isaac. How are you? I'm okay, actually. Can I just say one thing, which is oh, it's a want. shock because I listen to your show nearly every week, and you have this unbelievable voice that was meant for radio, darling. And we've met several times. Yes. And- every time I see your face, I'm like, nope, that's not Peter Segel. It can't possibly be Peter. Like the face doesn't match the voice. You I'm, know? I'm
3: well aware of that. Nobody who's ever met me. And this goes back for all 25 years of my radio career has ever said, oh, my gosh, you look exactly what I thought you'd look like. And then I ask them, well, what did you expect? And they say various things. One person said to me quite famously, you don't sound bald. And I don't know how that <laughs>
4: Oh, God. That Nice. Lovely. How do you sound bald? I don't don't know, know, darling. But here's the thing. The first time I was on Wait, Wait was in literally like the 90s or something. It was like 98. I know that because I, I had an assistant at the time called Sam Wilson, who was very groovy. And he discovered your show very, very early on. And the request came through and he was like, you have to do this show. And I was like, Sam, do I really I was like, no, you really do, because it's the greatest show. So I reluctantly was like, hello, it was over the phone, right? I was like, yeah. what do you want? I literally like was like, yeah, can I help? I was so rude, I remember on the show. And then you asked me all these ridiculous questions. Like you did all these games and I was like, who are these people? This is not going to last. Meantime, it became like my favorite show after I listened to it. (laughs) And then I did it again and we did it in person. But that first time I remember like absolutely disdaining the whole idea. But there you are. And now you are.
3: And we're all still here. I have the dates. People say to me that, oh, I'm your number one fan. And I say, no, you're not. You're best number two because we have this fan named Lynn Fom." in mm-hmm. Portland, who has over the years maintained a database of all the interesting stats wow. of our show. So with a quick look, I can tell you that your first appearance on our show was, you're correct, it was by phone in March of 2003. Oh, okay, in that case. And then you joined us on stage in New Haven, of all New places. New Haven, right. Uh, <gasps> in September of 2006. Thank you, Lin Fong.
4: Thank you, darling. Thank you, Lynn. So let's start with a little history about you. You now live in Chicago. Are you from that area? Did you grow up I am not.
3: I'm from suburban New Jersey. Really? What brought you to Chicago? Well, they offered me this job. I was living in New York. I was living in Brooklyn in 1997. I was married to a person to whom I am no longer married, who was a nice Mm -hmm. Midwestern girl. Nice. At any rate, she very much didn't really want to live in New York and certainly didn't want to raise our child in New York. And she was pregnant. So we had this deal. It was like something from a fairy tale. We would live in New York City to the first birthday of our first child, at which point we would have to leave to someplace. And I had no idea where. And then I had tried out to be a panelist on this new radio show. And just between you and me, Isaac, my initial impression of it was very similar to yours. (laughs) And then, much to my amazement, they offered me the job of host, which would require me to move to Chicago. And I don't know if you've been here, but Chicago is in the Midwest. Yes, I have. I love Chicago. Chicago's a great town. So it suited my then wife. It suited me and off we went. And I I, I did not expect a number of things. I did not expect I'd be here for so long. I did not expect I'd do this job for so long. I did not expect that someday I would be no longer married to that person. But stuff happens. Have you noticed?
4: Yes, it really does happen.
3: It does. Um, But where were you educated? I was a, a product of public schools in suburban New Jersey and then Harvard College, as we come on, pretentious people like to say. Yeah,
4: wow, yeah, yeah. and you never miss the opportunity to say, right? We well, talking about anything.
3: say I don't know how many minutes we are into this podcast, <laughs> but I did not say it before then. It's true, before so you were asked, you a little credit.
4: congratulations, yeah. I asked. Okay, you did
3: ask. I would have had to try to bring it up somehow, so I thank you for saving me that effort.
4: So, how did you make it from public school in New Jersey to Harvard? Like, how did you I do that, darling? Was the-
3: Biggest goddamn suck-up you've ever met. Suck-up um, to who? To the teachers? Suck-up to anybody, anybody uh, especially uh, teachers, sometimes parents, school administrators. I was just a, a, a brown-noser. And I guess I still am. I guess it might be my only skill. Uh, and it, it, rather than being like intelligent or talented, I'm clever. And clever, yes, my friend, clever, will take darling. you a long way, especially when you're taking standardized tests and impressing ah. people who might give you a recommendation. So I had a reputation as being very clever, very smart, as my mother from Boston might have said. And basically, I was more popular with adults than I was with my peers. And it turns out that those adults are far more important to getting you into a good school than your peers are.
4: Interesting. And what did you study? What did you see yourself doing as a young man or a little boy?
3: What did you want to do? Well, uh, my first professional ambition was I was going to be a pediatrician. And that was partially because my mother really wanted me to be a doctor, the nice Jewish mother. Exactly. Really, really Bless rode her. that stereotype rail her whole life. Mm-hmm. But also because I was under the mistaken impression that the profession was called Peter attrition. Th- thus, I thought it would be fitting. I'm right, talking about the age of on. four or five. Ah, I see, but I see. As soon as I was able to sort of like consciously express my own actual desires, apart from uh, those around me and my parents, I always wanted to be a writer. That was my goal. I grew up loving written humor, like S.J. Perelman Mm -hmm. and Woody Allen's early books. And more than anything, that's the sort of thing I wanted to do. In fact, one of the reasons I really, really wanted to go to Harvard was because of the Harvard Lampoon, which was Ah. even then, back in the late 70s, early 80s, legendary. And I wanted to be a part of that. And uh, as it happened, they wanted nothing to do with me once I got there. The Lampoon, Uh, they rejected you.
4: That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. You talk like a writer. Like you, I, quali- I, you pre-qualify a lot of things. Like thank are you, you. Yes. The, the sentences are quite structured. Congratulations, it's a beautiful thank you quality. And I note that on the show. That's how you talk, right? Just in general. Like that's probably how you address your infant children, right? Constantly,
3: I'm constantly saying, "Excuse me, <laughs> Theodore," but I was wondering. Uh, I was if, wondering if, you, in fact, right, exactly. if, in fact, given the proposition, <laughs> given, uh, assuming for the moment, uh, Theodore. That you've pooped in your diaper. Yes. <laughs> uh,
4: but darling, you don't really have a background in theater, do you?
3: I do, actually. Uh, that was my that was my other thing. I, I, because my other love, uh, passion, whatever you want to call it, enthusiasm growing up was theater. Mm-hmm. So I was a theater kid in high school. I started in the plays. And then I went off. And my other thing I wanted to do in college was put on plays. I ultimately acted in them uh, wrote some, I directed a bunch. So that was my thing. I was not the greatest student in the world. Never have been, but I I was very good at like running around and and trying to be in shows and putting on shows. By the time I got out of school, I I ended up pursuing that as a career sort of by accident, but I spent the first 10 years more or less out of college, pursuing a career in the theater, first working in the staff of a now defunct, large institutional theater in Southern California in LA called the LA Theater Center. Shout out to Spring Street if you're listening. And then became a playwright myself and managed to sort of start on the first rungs of that career, including some fellowships, some awards, and then ultimately some productions. And that's what I was doing when I was first introduced on, on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me as a panelist. And now joining us from Brooklyn, playwright Peter Sagel. That was what I was. Wow,
4: this is unbelievable. Yeah. Right. Well, we know that you actually wrote Dirty Dancing 2 or Dirty Dancing. Is it no, without the G? I I am the <laughs> second story
3: credit on Dirty Dancing 2 Havana Nights. Havana Nights. Okay, well, that's a big credit, darling. That's well, a big you credit. Know, I got the poster. I got to go to the premiere. I got to insult Patrick Swayze without meaning to. It was a big time.
4: Did you go to Havana to research this? I, I,
3: I didn't. I imagined. That this would be, to me, this movie what say Chinatown was to Robert Town. It would put me on the map as an right. A-list screenwriter. Well, this is what happened. So I had written a few plays and one of them got, came to the attention of a producer you might have heard of or even met named Lawrence Bender, who was right. very well known at the time for being Quentin Tarantino's producer. Yes, Uh, He produced Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Mm -hmm. Fiction, and he wanted to do a movie with me having read my play. And we kicked about some ideas, and we came up with a story based on the autobiography, or at least the life story, of a dear friend of his, a dancer and choreographer named Joanne Jansen. Mm -hmm. Joanne, who was a vivid person, had spent her youth, part of it, in Cuba with her father, who worked for, I think, Alcoa, and she had been living in Havana at the time of the Cuban Revolution, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And so the story was based on, vaguely in her experience, it was about a young woman, an American there in the Cuban Revolution, she's there to witness it, she gets involved in it, she meets people who are involved in it. Mm -hmm. Parenthetically, the Cuban Revolution is an amazing story that has never been properly told, and I thought I would properly tell it. So I tried, and I wrote a screenplay in which you see the Cuban Revolution from this young woman's eyes and it's a good uh, idea it was a fabulous idea i thought i don't know how good the screenplay was but i did my best and the note i got back was we were hoping for something more like dirty dancing (laughs) oh wow god that's great i don't know how i missed that to begin with but i did and at which point in retrospect i should have said well you know That's not me. I'm not the guy for that. But, you know, it was my first job in Hollywood. I wanted to do a good job. I wanted to be a trooper. So I kept at it. And every draft I did trying to make more like Dirty Dancing i.e. a romance between boy, girl and music, right. it got worse because I was not then, nor am I now a 16-year-old girl?
4: Darling, I'm going to recommend a book, in case you haven't read it, that you Please. must, must read. It's Joan Didion and John Gregory Dunn's experience writing, I don't know, some movie for Michelle Pfeiffer and Robert Redford. It's called Monster, and it is oh, so oh, I've heard incredibly about incredibly funny and wonderful. It's like you hand in one thing and they're like, well, we were thinking, can it be a more like dirty dance, I mean, it is just one of the funniest books in the world, a la what you're talking about right now. Right. And the thing about you as a person on the show, and I'm guessing as a writer because I never read anything that you wrote, but I, I think you're extremely witty and you're extremely funny. Did you ever do stand up? And if if not, how did you escape doing stand up?
3: You know? uh, I never did stand up. It never occurred to me to do stand up. I've done monologues and mm-hmm. I've done. Sort of comic things. The plays that I wrote, I like to think, even though they're all on very serious topics, often had lots of jokes. Right. And I was known, like a lot of theater kids were, as the class clown. And like mm-hmm. a lot of people who grew up that way, you're raising your hand. Yes, I'm raising my hand. Exactly. A mm-hmm. lot of people who, for various reasons, didn't fit in in high school right maybe they were socially awkward maybe they were you know closeted maybe they were gay like maybe maybe they they were gay and you're about to
4: come out of something after having five children and
3: two right exactly yeah Um, exactly no not me no that's not me (laughs) but i had other problems (laughs) Uh, but a lot of us as you well know masked that or Mm -hmm. got around it maybe by being funny you know, yes. if you weren't socially successful or you're not good looking, you're not good at athletics or anything else that might impress the cohort of high school students, you make jokes. My problem in general was that my jokes, again, were far more appreciated by the adults around than the right. than the kids. But uh, that's and the smart
4: right. adults, by the way. Smart adults, well, Yes.
3: Only yeah. the best adults appreciated right. my jokes as a 17 year old. Right.
4: Well, let me ask you this, because the show that you do every single week for what is it now, 25 years or something? 25 years. 25 years. Okay. Yes. So that show gets put together. I'm guessing there's a lot of writing in advance, right? Do you write jokes?
3: Do you actually write jokes? I do. I write jokes, but thank God I am not the only one who does. And I think uh, if I were, I wouldn't have been around for 25 years. We have what is is essentially a writer's room. I mean, we don't call it that, but we have producers who work on the show, many of whom have other duties as well. Everybody contributes. We have some people who are professional writers. That's all they do is they write jokes for us. For example, Peter Gwynn, who is a veteran Mm -hmm. of Stephen Colbert in New York and other Mm -hmm. high-level comedy stuff. And so, yeah, when I stand up to do the show, (laughs) I have in front of me a script that's been written and rewritten with stories that we've selected and pitched to each other with jokes that we've written about those stories. And I absolutely contribute to it. Sometimes it'll be my jokes. Sometimes it's my edits of other people's jokes. And I had to get used to this because this wasn't what I was used to as a writer. I felt very strongly about credit. It was really weird for me at first to perform other people's jokes and get a laugh. Right, I right. Bad. Mm-hmm. I, I understand, remember, darling. I understand. Yeah, I was like, well, no, I, I'm glad you enjoyed that. And eventually I realized, no, no, just take the applause. They right, think it's exactly. Why darling, with that?
4: darling, that's yeah. what's called show business. That's exactly, what's called show business. Exactly,
3: you know. But how much of it happens on the spot? A lot of it happens on the spot. And the show is designed that way. Our gimmick, if you will, is a spontaneity. And as George Burns said about sincerity, if you can fake that, you've got it made. Mm -hmm. So in the space, if you will, of comedy, of of satire, you've got people like Stephen Colbert, who are both brilliant and have amazing staffs of writers. You've got, say, John Mm -hmm. Oliver, who's got, you know, just an incredible staff of producers who create those very funny, lengthy packages that he does. That's become his hallmark. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. I am incredibly impressed. We don't have the money to do that. They have enormous staffs. We have a staff of maybe seven people in a good week. That's a uh, lot of
4: people writing jokes, because here's the thing about all these people who have like writing staves and yeah. jokes and whatever. I mean, you're the sieve through which everything. Yeah. 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 And which so when is, you which, read the script, do you ever go like, yeah, not so funny. I can't sell that.
3: It's more like this. You know, as you know, we have this panel and the panel, very funny people changing from week to week, but they're all great. They don't know what we're going to ask right. them. They don't know what we've written. They, they, they sometimes can anticipate what the top stories are. So maybe they're thinking, oh, yeah, I better come up with something to say about, I don't know, the State of the Union speech. Mm-hmm. But almost always, I'll start something. Start with our best jokes that we've written about, you know, topic A. Right. And then the panel will come up with something. And my job is to follow them see where they go. You know, sometimes uh, I'll encourage them to go further. Sometimes I'll hit the ball back. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we never go back to the written script at all, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, this is much more interesting. And all these amazing jokes that were written with blood and sweat over the course of a week vanish, never to be heard from again. Sometimes I go back to the script and pick it up if things aren't going in a useful direction. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I'm almost embarrassed to admit this. Sometimes I am able to offer a written joke as if I just thought of it.
4: Well, we all can do that, darling. I mean, any of us who perform on stage have learned to do that. I mean, that's an important.
3: But I I had to learn how to do that. That was one of the skills that, that I needed to acquire after we got these talented writers.
4: Speaking of doing a show that is so of the moment, and yet it's not daily, it's weekly, nope. you know, it's like, because sometimes news changes right. from literally. It from, does. Especially A, a couple now. Of
3: times over the years, we have had to go into the studio on Friday, even after performing the show in a live audience and had to fake right. the live audience to change uh, something that happened on Friday. Right. Famously, I remember once, it was in the spring of uh, t- 2009 and uh, it was the Nobel Prizes that had come out and we did a thing about Nobel Prizes. And then Friday morning, they gave the Peace Prize to Obama. Ah! We had done the show in this enormous auditorium in Boston, so we had to fake that echo with effects, and we had to reassemble everybody. Wow. It was like doing a reshoot on a a major motion picture. But generally speaking, we have two advantages. One is that most of the stuff we do in the show is not, with the exception of the first couple of stories, is not like absolutely timely this week's big story. A lot Mm -hmm. of it is just goofy stuff that... It can hold, you know. The other (laughs) advantages, we don't really care. We stopped caring during the Trump years, right? There was just so much crap pouring over the transom. Right. My joke was, it was like that famous "I Love Lucy" sketch with the chocolates. It just keeps, yes, coming, it faster just keeps faster faster coming faster and faster and faster, faster it right? but exactly. it's not chocolate <laughs> uh, and so wow. during the trump administration our attitude went from oh my god we have to anticipate what might happen with the story we'll record two different things depending on what happens on friday wow. to after 7:30 central time on thursday it is no longer our problem right we're gonna go home and put our heads under the covers like the rest of you
2: Join us as we try to solve a thirty-five-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends: Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry.
4: You've been doing, wait, wait, don't tell me, for 25 years, yes. right? And it's a lot of shows, because you have like guest hosts occasionally. I have, right? I have guest like, seriously, hosts. Seriously, how
3: many shows do you do a year? We do about 40 shows a year. Okay. Uh, which is more than... That's a lot um, of shows. A lot of shows. Uh, it's more than know, the Gilmore a... Girls. Yes, exactly, exactly. Because you know yeah. we're weird, we're sort of an entertainment show, but on a news show schedule. So we do about 40 shows a year. And wow. Wow. We celebrated our thousandth episode in the fall of 2019. So wow. maybe we're up to, I don't know, t- uh, t- 1,200 maybe Right. Um, since then.
4: Is it a grind? How do you keep it fresh? I mean, you know, talk about that. Talk about doing anything for 25 years, you know, well, which, by
3: the way, is very appealing to me. There were, there, there were times, especially when I was younger, where I was like, oh, my gosh, is this all there is, to quote the, the Torch singer right uh and was eagerly trying to move on to the next thing because this is america right you're supposed to move on to the next thing isn't that right you're supposed to get the next thing yes and and i did try i did a bunch of projects some of which even saw the light of day but nothing ever came along as steady and as reliable and frankly as successful and popular mm-hmm. as Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. right And now I have now aged to the point, Isaac, where rather than being frustrated that this is all I get to do, I am grateful that I get to do it. <laughs> oh my God. Wow, of course. Oh my God, I've got this amazing gig. I get to do a show of a kind in front of a live audience every week. And not to get too sentimental on you, but Please. because we have been doing it for so long, we've become kind of an institution background. Yes, darling. Yes. yes. And so my favorite thing is we'll be doing a show and this is back when we could meet people after every show. We stopped that with the pandemic and maybe we'll go back to it. But even now and then it happens. People will raise their hand in the audience and volunteer this. A young woman, for example, will say, you know, I grew up listening to the show with my dad. On the way to soccer practice when I was in the third grade, mm-hmm. and now I'm 25 years old, and here is my father, and I've taken him for his 65th birthday, and they wave, and I oh my god, that. it's incredible, it it's, gives it's you such amazing. A... You know, look, we're we're basically dad jokes and fart jokes, and uh... except
4: you're talking about something that you know, went from being this kind of crazy anomaly, right, Yeah. to becoming this beloved thing, you know, how has it changed? Are there things about it that you like better? Yeah, Oh, absolutely. Like
3: uh, absolutely. Let, let me start with myself. I think I'm a lot better at it than I was. We've been doing this thing recently where there's a sort of like a little podcast extra for supporters, We will go back and we will listen to segments from shows from 20 years ago, like the first time you were on the show. Mm -hmm. And then we'll listen to me asking questions. And then in the present moment, myself and a a special guest, a listener, will try to figure out what the answer is from the distance of 20 years, which gives me an opportunity to listen to myself 20 years ago. And ah, oh man, honestly, if I am a terrible person and I end up in hell, my torture will be having to listen to me doing this I show for the first darling. five years when I had no idea what I was doing. So I think I'm better at it in a number of ways. And I can tell you sort of what my evolution was. Obviously, I think over the years we acquired and happily have been able to keep a bunch of really talented people Yes, came in and make our show a lot better. Not to mention
4: some of the panelists who have been yes, on Yes, and that's it, the ever.
3: last and most important mm-hmm. thing. That's the place where we try to really keep the show fresh by bringing in new voices, mm-hmm. some of whom will join us for a show or two, some of whom will become beloved members of the family, as it were, you know, these amazingly talented young comedians. Well,
4: you know what? Is it just funny? Is your show just funny?
3: We occasionally have arguments on our on our staff, good ones, about what's to stress. What do we need to talk about this week? Is this, is this too tasteless? Is this too mm-hmm. serious? But the one thing we all agree on Is even those of us, and that would really be me who think that we have an obligation to take on the major stories of the week, uh, is that people turn to us for a break. And that has to do with a larger media environment, which can be very, very depressing. I don't need to tell you (sighs) that. It also has to do with the specific environment of public radio, which tends to be very serious, you know. Like, in our market here in Chicago, we come on after Scott Simon's morning news story, and these Mm -hmm. days it can be pretty bleak. Oh, boy, oh, boy. And so by the time people get to us on Saturday morning, usually, they are ready to lighten up. And that can be both us saying rude things about the major people in the news, be they whatever president, be they whatever Mm -hmm. thing that's happened, but it's also just us goofing around with the silliest stories we can find. And that's another thing I should say that has been confirmed and reaffirmed over and over again by our audience. They say, oh my God, sometimes just waiting to hear you guys goof around gets me through the week. Of course. it was particularly true during the pandemic when we continued to do shows, not in front of a live audience, but on mm-hmm. Zoom, God help us all. And people said the same thing, you know, knowing that you guys were still doing this show, kept, you know, was really encouraging it's to true. me and helped me cope. So again, it's a privilege and an honor to do that work could just be goofy.
4: Darling, yep. so go back a minute because you were saying sometimes you have to segue from this really really heavy duty news into a kind of a light comic show. Yeah. But I want to talk to you about fatherhood because darling, oh you took that very seriously. Like you've I, got some kids, darling. You I got do. A few I, have, kids. I have a lot of them. <laughs> Strangely,
3: I've lost um, track of some of them.
4: You so, have indeed First of all, what the hell were you thinking? Like, what kind of a person listens to the news and then goes, yeah, I'm going to procreate. I'm going to have another generation. Tell me a little bit about your kids. First of all, how old are they?
3: My first batch of kid, my my first production (laughs) run. The first Brady Bunch, the first Sagal Bunch. They were born in 1998, 2000, 2003, all girls. And they're out in the world. They're being adults. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, to my credit, things weren't so dire back then. So, you know... I guess. <laughs> uh, and, so, uh, and so I think we can be forgiven. Yeah, I guess so.
4: Yeah. You were like, uh, oh, 9-11. That's fine. 9-11 happened. What can possibly yeah, happen now? Yeah, you know, it'll, it'll be yeah. fine. I,
3: I think our last daughter was born after the invasion of Iraq, yeah. but she was conceived before, you know, before it happened. So right. Okay. We, we got a pass on that. The second round has, <laughs> was very unexpected, <laughs> but very welcome, I should say, in case my kids ever listen to this. I'm glad you're here. <laughs> Holly and So basically, my incredible good fortune was after my marriage exploded in a pretty bad way. I spent a couple of years in the wilderness as one of those awful divorced men in his 40s. Oh, Lord. Mm -hmm. But I met an an astonishingly lovely and kind and, as far as my needs went, forgiving young woman named Mara, to whom I am now married. Mm -hmm. And it was obvious to everybody who ever met her even if it wasn't immediately obvious to her, was born to be a mother. Mm-hmm. And so this was something we decided that we wanted to do. And I mean, my feelings about it were were, shall we say, uh, complex. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had done it before. I had children. I'd experienced that for good and for bad. She never had, though, and I knew she wanted to. And it felt unfair to say to somebody, Oh, I'd like you to spend the rest of your life with me and also give up this deeply important thing to right, you." That never right. Right. And also, you know, I'm older than she is, and it is my mm-hmm. plan to die long before she does. I'm right. working pretty. Nice. I, I very much want her to have somebody around that she can complain about me to knowingly. Right. <laughs> you know, like, remember when your dad used to do this obnoxious thing? Yeah, mom, that drove me crazy too. That remember
4: when that asshole called your father? Right exactly. <laughs> Wait a minute. Did you at least make a deal with this woman to go You know what? You're going to have to do a lot of the heavy lifting cuz I'm 55. How old are you, darling?
3: I'm 58 now. You're 58? Okay. And when did you have your last kid? My son, uh, Teddy who I do think will be my last kid in That's both right. <laughs> ways, uh, was born in January of this year, uh, what, right before 58? my 58th birthday.
4: So yeah. like basically like you and Elton John and Alec Baldwin, like there's a Exactly, yes. You
3: meet that, every it, week. Among the so many things we have in common. <laughs> um, also, <laughs> one of the great pleasures of my life, as you can imagine, is whenever an elderly celebrity has a child, I hear about it. Right, like of course. Peter, of did you course. hear about Al Pacino? Right. He just oh, had a baby. He's 80. Oh,
4: God, that is so great. That is so great. So one of the great things I love about Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me are the games that you play yes. with people. So I want to play a game with oh. you. We know that you wrote this screenplay for Dirty Dancing 2, Havana Nights. And we were thinking we were going to play a game with you called Dirty Diapers.
3: Oh, yeah. Because of these. Oh, kids. I am on top of this, my friend.
4: <laughs> you ready? Okay. Marion Donovan has been credited with creating the first practical disposable diaper in 1950 by using which of the following materials? A, an umbrella. B, a shower curtain. C, a pillowcase.
3: I'm going to go only because of its uh, moisture protective quality is a shower curtain. B, you're right. Question
4: number two. Marion's final diaper design included nylon parachute cloth, which was breathable and eliminated diaper rash. She also used metal and plastic snaps instead of elastic or sharp diaper pins. What did she call it? Did she call it the boater, the floater, or the bloater?
3: Wow. Gosh. I was going to eliminate C, because why would you call a commercial product the bloater? But and you said exactly, it's only encouraging me to skip that one. <laughs> hmm. But then I was going to say, well, on the other hand, maybe that was like internal use because it would bloat with, so the, the other one is the boater, like a boat. Yes. <laughs> or the, what was the other option? The floater. The floater. Uh, only because a floater is really kind of gross in the context of what goes into <laughs> the diaper, I'm going to go with the boater.
4: Yes, Yes. you got it right. You got two right. I'm so happy. I don't know what you're going to win. You're going to win like me on your answering machine. I, I would take it. This is the third question. How long does it take for a disposable diaper to decompose completely? 20 to 50 years A, 100 to 200 years B, or 250 to 500 years
3: C? Only because I'm incredibly guilty about using these things, I'm going to go for the longest period, which was C.
4: Wow, darling, you see, because you have a lot of experience with these games. I know. I'm not kidding. I'm sorry about my dog, but he's very excited with the bell and everything. I know, that's fine. All right. I have another game. Is that all right? Sure, okay. Seriously, this is called Not My Job Anymore.
3: Ah, that's a twist.
4: So this is presumably
3: <laughs> about something I used to do.
4: yes. I read somewhere that you were a magician's assistant. That's sort is of that true, right? That's sort That's of true. sort
3: of true. Everything about me is sort of true. <laughs> I sort of wrote "Dirty Dancing" to "Havana Nights." I sort of was a magician's assistant in that when we were growing up, my older brother, now a rabbi, still in New Jersey, was a children's mu- uh, magician, and I would be his beautiful young assistant sometimes. Right? Did you wear something uh, like boring? a dangly dress? No. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't like a have cape. Good. I don't remember. I vaguely remember wearing some kind of costume. It might have been a T-shirt that said magician's assistant. But it's been a while.
4: OK, we'll have the following true or false questions about magic. You oh, ready? Please. The FBI hired a magician to train agents in sleight of hand techniques for use in their Mickey slipping
3: LSD experiments. Uh, wow. OK. Uh, I know they did LSD experiments, but you might be trying to fool me. I'm going to say yes, because this the sort of thing they do.
4: Well, it's sort of false because it was the CIA, not the FBI. You see, it was a trick question. I know, I I wish I I had like a buzzer, like... I was
3: distracted. I was distracted by the magician thing, and I let that little factoid go by. See? uh, You see? You learn. See, darling.
4: Okay. Question number two. It's illegal in Queensland, Australia, to own a pet rabbit unless you can prove that you're a magician.
3: Mm -hmm. Is that true or false? Yes, that's true, because rabbits are a terrible problem in Australia.
4: Darling, that is true. How would you ever know that?
3: Because I mentioned my actual skills. I just have this amazing ability to collect tidbits of useless information. And I remember reading that rabbits are an invasive species in Australia and reproduce like mad and eat all the crops.
4: The other thing yeah. I heard about, like, you know, we think koalas are so cute yeah. and they're and th- Infested with disease, and they have like crazy like rashes on their butts, and they're disgusting. According yeah, they to yeah, get,
3: they get chlamydia.
4: Right, a lot of chlamydia from the koalas. All right, here's another question. Lifestyle. (laughs) Right, exactly. Hey, hey, watch what you say about (laughs) (laughs) lifestyle. All right, question number three. In 2006, David Mm -hmm. Copperfield and two assistants were robbed at gunpoint. David was able to use sleight of hand to conceal his possessions. And when the thieves turned to him, he called his spontaneous illusion reverse pickpocketing.
3: See, here's the thing. I i just have an instinct about this in that i i I think that might have happened but i don't think it was david copperfield for reasons that i can't quite say but i'm just going to go with my gut and say that's false it was another magician
4: it's actually true darling and it was david copperfield damn you see i'm sorry we threw you off with that cia fbi yeah no
3: no 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 that one's just on me i followed my instinct and my instincts all right. Do you, want, Charlie, do you want one more to
4: make it like? Yes, so, yes, so I you do. could actually win my, my voice you know on your answering funny? machine? Uh, what?
3: One of the things I do is whenever anybody comes in the show, I might have done it with you back in 2006, is I always talk to them beforehand and I tell them, you're going to play this silly quiz on our show and it doesn't matter. Don't take it seriously. It's right. totally fine if you lose. And I am down two to one and I feel terrible.
4: So, so, you see you see what I'm there saying? You, go. you see I what I'm a saying? Here. Well, you won the first round, so this did, is the I second did. round. Okay. All right, you ready for this? Yes. Apollo Robbins, a pickpocket magician, struck up a conversation with Ronald Reagan and his secret service agents. Within a few minutes, he emptied the agents' pockets of everything except their guns.
3: Is that right. Right? false or true? I happen to know Apollo. He's been on the show. I've met him a few times. He's a really nice guy. Okay. Uh, And even if that's not true, I'm going to say it's true because Apollo can do anything. So I'm going to say true just as a tribute to my friend.
4: Okay. Well, it's true that he did it, but not to ronald reagan it was jimmy oh. carter it was jimmy you Carter. you see you see I, you see I, yeah. oh, well listen it. by the way you won the first round which means that i will record your if you want me that today. you know
3: what i might really enjoy that
4: no wouldn't it be hilarious like hi darlings why not <laughs> it would be very
3: unexpected oh, be and so i think good. it would be hilarious so yes yeah. i will take you up on that
1: just
0: be me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a without parent. Only in theaters May 17th.
2: Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave,
1: Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're gonna talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're gonna go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're gonna be talking with some of my best friends. My I sister. didn't know we were gonna go there on I'm this! <laughs> A Really Good Cry with Raleigh Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: All right. I'm going to ask you now a question that I ask most of the people that I speak to on my podcast, which is about their obituaries, because I am literally obsessed with obituaries. What does your obituary say when you die in about 50 years from now? 50 years.
3: Thank you. I appreciate that. My sons appreciate that. Uh, Uh, For many years, I always said it was going to be Peter Sagal, who wrote Dirty Dancing, Havana Nights, without (laughs) ever meaning to. Right. Um, I think I would have to quote The Times or or Vanity Fair. To Uh paraphrase what they said, we'll say Peter Sagal, who affably told dad jokes on public radio (gasps) for many years, died today of frustration when he didn't get a quiz correct.
4: You see? Well, I hope not. And that is not why you die. And by the way, you know, you said that a little bit earlier about dad jokes. Yes. And I'm not so sure... That's what it is. Because, first of all, a dad joke can be really, really funny. Okay. Yes, One, that's okay? true. And I don't and,
3: mean to diminish the quality of dad jokes. I am no, a dad. No, 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 no. Jokes. Right.
4: So there you go. But I find the show to be so much more than just dad jokes, you know? And I'm wondering asking for a friend now, how do you become a panelist on that damn show?
3: <laughs> uh, you, basically, you become a panelist on our show by being generally very funny and sharp. I should say, by the way, that we have had over the years some incredibly funny people, including people who have gone on to astonishingly successful careers, like Keegan-Michael Key is a great example, Wow! Mm -hmm. who have been on our show, and despite their amazing talent, just couldn't fit in. We were a weird gig, we require a bunch of different skills, that are not necessarily the kind of skills you need to be a successful comedian or anything in this world. They're just particular to our show. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you have to know a lot about the news, you have to be quick, you have to be at the at the same time willing to grab the spotlight, you have to play well with others.
4: You have to get along with Paula Poundstone. You have to get along with A. Paula Poundstone. Exactly. Oh, that,
3: I, yeah, I don't know if you've ever met Paula. That's not hard. She no, is she's an amazing. Nice
4: Absolutely agree. You have to
3: go out of your way to not get along. <laughs>
4: <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, is there something you want to promote on the podcast?
3: I will say that. I do have a book that is in print that came out a few (laughs) years ago called The Incomplete Book of Running that I'm proud of, and people tell me they enjoyed. So I recommend that from your local independent bookseller or library. And other than that, just tune in to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me on the weekends or listen to it on a podcast. It's always great when you spend time with us. Well, here's the thing. I want
4: your voice on my answering machine. It would be an honor. Darling, that would just be the greatest thing in the world. And first of all, what answering machine?
3: That's another question. When the show began, we actually said answering machine. Now we say voicemail. But I guess everybody's got a voicemail. It's just that nobody is rude enough to leave you one. Right? I have one of the most
4: absurd and hilarious messages from, like, 1993 from Liza Minnelli. It's one of the great things ever. I forgot what exactly she what she, I, she says, like, honey, it's me. And I, I forgot what it was. It was some of the most, like, ridiculous, hilarious thing in the world. Uh, Isaac, can I ask you a question? Sure.
3: You're an eclectic fellow, and I might make a guess as to what the lead of your obituary might be, but what do you want it to be?
4: I think I, boy, well, you know what? The more I ask people that question, the more they go, oh, I want to just be remembered for being a good person, you know? You're talking to, like, someone so incredibly accomplished, so incredibly, like, career-oriented, they're going, I want to be known as a good dad or a good mom, right? And I go, like, are we living in the same planet, you know? Darling, I, I used to have like a recurring nightmare that I would be on the phone with my shrink and my mother at the same time going, you cannot let them publish this obituary. It's not going to happen. This cannot be. And so I'm not exactly sure. Here's the thing. I don't want it to be about fashion or clothing. That's all I know. That's, I know. that's, a, that's
3: a big ask <laughs> for you, Isaac. No, I want it to be like third paragraph in. Oh, by the way. What? And you know, I'm just, I'm just imagining what your obituary would say. And in addition to his extraordinary humanitarianism and sexual prowess, he also designed clothes. No, darling, no, no. But why not? I mean, clothing I was your know. first love. It's how you first became well known, and you're very, very you're good right. at. It. You're right. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And I will say that that idea of being remembered as a good person, that's become more and more important to me as I've gotten older. I, yeah, I too yeah. read obituaries. And what I look for when I read those obituaries is I look for the people about whom other people have really good things to say, you know? Yeah. I mean, I remember uh, just two random examples. There was an obituary recently of a very wealthy man. He made his money, I think, with duty-free shops. Mm-hmm. and oh, he gave well. all his money away all yeah, of it he that's did right. it anonymously
4: that was incredible I read that a bit
3: and I also remember and this is a uh, you know obviously a kind of outlier of an example but I remember reading the obituary of Rush Limbaugh and it was all about his career and how influential he was yeah. and, and his hands and all these things. And, wow. and nobody had a goddamn nice thing to say about him. Nobody said, oh, yeah, the Rush I knew. The, he was such a great friend. Right. Oh, his dinner parties were wonderful. You always knew if you're going to Rush's house, you'd have... Nobody said anything like that.
4: Well, by the way, did you read the obituary the other day about the chicken lady?
3: Did you see that? No. Who the, oh, wait a minute. Yes. The, 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 the woman
4: chicken who the was, activist, the chicken yes. rights lady, the chicken rights. I, that was yeah. amazing. I thought that... That's my obituary. Actually, I do have one final, final, final oh, question. Right. I hope you have one second to answer. I do. Answer. For you, Isaac? Blah, blah, blah. Is there some kind of a failure in your life that oh, you remember?
3: Uh, yeah. I mean, there's been a lot. Uh, but but the one thing that, that stays with me, and I also should say that this is a little bit of what my book is about, was my divorce. Because <sighs> I grew up, my parents had a very happy marriage. It lasted for 63 years until my mother died just two, two years. years ago. And you know, it wasn't perfect, but they were devoted to each other. And for me and my brothers, certainly, and most of my extended circle of friends, the idea of ever getting divorced, ever being that guy seemed impossible. Right. To ah. and, and like a lot of people, I, I probably delayed what would have been a healthy thing, which is ending the marriage for many, many years, just because I didn't want to have that failure. I didn't want to be mm-hmm. that person I never could have imagined being. And it just so happens that, without getting into it, it was a particularly ugly divorce. I I had hoped to have one of those amical divorces you sometimes hear about. It it didn't work out that way. It was really brutal. Ah. And it cost me me a lot. And what was so awful about it was I felt like Job, not to be too... (laughs) uh, Too dramatic? (laughs) uh, Too biblical. But in that, you remember what happens to Job is everything he has accumulated... Is taken away, his family, yeah. his wealth. And I felt that way. I, I did in my house, my family was separated from me. Gosh. Everything that I had felt I had worked for and gotten, and I'm making little quotes, I had lost. Now it is also true that, like Job, I have regained all that in spades. Although I didn't get back what I lost, I've gotten other things that are even better. But one of the things that it really did to me when you ask, like what I learned, is how. Much I had to change my attitude from that sense of accumulation. Like you go through life and you accumulate these things. You get a house, you get a career, you get a wife, you get a family, and then you have these things that I right. guess I don't know. When you die, they add them up and they give you a score. Well, I don't know.
4: you see, going back to obits,
3: darling, exactly. you know, right? Yeah, and I kind of learned. To put that feeling aside of both accumulation, gain, and loss, and to try to live my ah, life in wow. a different way, about being far more in the moment and far more about appreciating what I had rather than what I could get. And right. the other things as well.
4: This is a really, really good lesson for us. Also, I think so. by the way, you're totally a good-looking guy. You're sort of like the Stanley Tucci of the Jews or something like that. Did you Thank have you. like a hard time meeting your second wife? Or did it Um, just happen?
3: It it kind of just happened in the sense, I mean, I'm very lucky in that when I became divorced, I had a public profile, so it was a little easier for me to Mm -hmm. meet people to date. But it turns out that, I think this is true, that my wife had actually been to see my show you know, long before she met me. Oh, ooh, and, I and as love far it. as I know, she wasn't that crazy about it. But I will tell <laughs> you the story because you are a showman. And the brief version is this I met my wife because I was asked to be. The special guest star in a show here in Chicago that was a parody of A Christmas Carol and other Christmas specials, including the old Andy Williams-style specials Mm -hmm. with, oh, who's at the door? And every night they had a celebrity guest. And in Mm -hmm. Chicago, I count as a celebrity, so I got to do it. And the night before, they had had a person who will go unnamed who was terrible. And they gave scores, the stage manager and cast gave scores to all their guests 1 to 5 stars de- depending on how lovely they were to work with and she got 0 stars this person Jeez I showed up the next night and because I had been in the theater impressed the stage manager with the yeah. fact that I knew that stage left was stage left I knew not to <laughs> touch the props and then when somebody said to me, five minutes, Mr. Segal, I knew to say thank you, five. And right. so in comparison to the terrible person who had been on before, and thanks to my background in the theater, I am now happily married. I married the stage manager.
4: Ah, I was waiting for that. That's yes, the I know. Payoff. Got yes, it. Know. Okay. So she just liked you. I was going to say, how many stars did you
3: get? Darling? I got but... five stars. Because well, there again, you go. Again, I think I looked good compared to my immediate predecessor. But, you know, I scored some points and okay. everything then thereafter came from that. So everybody learn your stage etiquette. Absolutely. Stay left I eye from the perspective of the performer, Got not it, the audience. Totally. That's exactly. right. Right. Okay. Nice. Don't touch the props. Don't touch the costumes. Don't
4: touch the costumes. Don't touch the
3: props. God, never mess around. No. Don't improvise. No. Know your lines. No, no. Know your exactly. cue. Mm-hmm. And the appropriate response when someone tells you what the time is before your performance they say 10 minutes. You say, thank you, Thank you, Ken. 10. You're indicating exactly. you just heard that yes, and you right. know it. That's right. Okay, Learn that and you will end up as happy as I am.
4: Well, darling, that is incredible inv- advice to leave our listeners with. I think so. You are an amazing, amazing podcast guest. Thank you so much. Peter Isaac, Saban. you
3: are a delight you're, in every way. And you're a delight. I'm just so thrilled to know that you're out there listening. It's very exciting to
4: me. All the time, constantly. That was such a delight. It's everything I hoped it would be. And in a funny way, it's exactly what I hoped it would be. For one thing, he's the first guest or one of the few guests I've had on who actually just answered the obituary question without a flinch. And he answered it so intelligently. And he said what I was expecting him to say. Then he asked me the question And what I said to him was something he wasn't expecting. And I guess that's why I ask that question on every single podcast, because what people expect my obituary to be and what I really want it to be about are not the same at all. In his case... I was just thrilled and delighted that Peter understands what that show has become in this country and who he has become in this country as a kind of like an icon and a beloved weekly character in our lives. Anyway, I had a lot of fun between everything that Peter said and playing the games and pretending to be Peter Sagal in some ways. And I'm glad you got a chance to hear it. Thank you so much for listening. Darlings, if you enjoyed this episode, do me a favor and tell someone, tell a friend, tell your mother, tell your cousin, tell everyone you know, okay? And be sure to rate the show. I love rating stuff. Go on and rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more people can hear about it. It makes such a gigantic difference and like it takes a second. So go on and do it. And if you want more fun content, Videos and posts of all kinds. Follow the show on Instagram and TikTok at Hello Isaac Podcast. And by the way, check me out on Instagram and TikTok at I am Isaac Mizrahi. This is Isaac Mizrahi. Thank you. I love you. And I never thought I'd say this, but goodbye, Isaac. Hello, Isaac! is produced by Imagine Audio, Awfully Nice, and I Am Entertainment for iHeart Media. The series is hosted by me, Isaac Mizrahi. Hello, Isaac! is produced by Robin Gelfenbein. The senior producers are Jesse Burton and John Asante. It is executive produced by Ron Howard, Brian Grazer, Kara Welker, and Nathan Clokey at Imagine Audio. Production management from Katie Hodgins. Sound design and mixing by Cedric Wilson. Original music composed by Ben Waltzer. A special thanks to Neil Phelps and Sarah Katanak at IM Entertainment.
2: Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story.
1: okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one listen to a really good cry with radhi on the iHeartRadio radio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts
4: welcome to season nine of next question with me katie Couric. i've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only chris jenner oh my gosh congratulations that is very very exciting and that's just the beginning We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in. Take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question
3: with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.